Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, remotely by co-host Joe Wolfon. Hey, man. Hey, hey. The NBA is in It's in the swing of things, man. We're a third of the way through the season. Every East team's a fugazi. Um, <laughs> we got things happening. We got things to talk about. But today, we're not going to pick on any uh, news topic. We're not going to pick on any of the East fugazis. We are just going to uh, stick with one theme, and that theme is going to be breakout players. And before we get to our breakout players of the first third of the season, we, you, decided it would be a good idea to revisit uh, quickly off the top. The players we predicted would be breakout players this season, uh, if anyone remembers that episode from maybe the week or two weeks before the season. Yeah, let's hope not, because uh, I think it's fair to say we cursed them all. There is a clear pound the rock curse going on. Joe, just take it away. Let, let the remind our listeners who we thought would be the breakout players of the 2020-2021 season. Well, Cash, you and I make some predictions on this pod. We have some takes. Some of them turn out to be right. We'll take a victory lap when they are. Many. We got to own the L's. Absolutely. And we pick those up too. And I feel bad, honestly, at the way that this has played out for us and specifically for the players involved. So... Here are some of the guys that we picked as breakout candidates this year. Markel Fultz, done for the year with a torn ACL. Derek White, started the year with a toe injury. He played in one game, then went back on the shelf, had surgery. He basically just came back. He's now coming off the bench for the Spurs, and he's playing fine, but still doesn't look to be 100%. Evan Porter Traded for a bag of basketballs. I still have faith you know, long-term in KPJ, but safe to say this has been a rough start to the season for him. He started the season on the sidelines for personal reasons, which included a drug and weapons charge and also an assault allegation, which I I wasn't actually aware of at the time that I made this pick. And so I apologize for not mentioning that. He came back. I mean, I don't need to rehash what happened. I feel like everybody listening to this pod probably knows, but uh, he found out his locker had been moved to accommodate Torian Prince had a bit of a fit, threw food apparently, uh, got traded to the Rockets for, as you said, a bag of basketballs. And he's now playing for the Rio Grande Valley Vipers of the G League. I think he's played a couple of games now. I I imagine that we'll see him in the NBA sometime in the near future, but I also think it might be far-fetched to imagine him having an NBA breakout this season. You picked Michael Porter Jr., who... I think he's been pretty good when he's played in spite of, you know, the continued slip-ups, I would say, at the defensive end of the floor. Uh, like, he he's still flashed a lot of that tantalizing potential, but he's also barely played because he spent like a month in quarantine. Yeah. He seemingly broke quarantine protocol while he was supposed to be isolating, and that is why I think that quarantine got extended. But he was out for a long while, and now he's back, and he, he's playing all right. I also picked Wendell Carter Jr. A lot of juniors, apparently. Yeah. They're, play, they're all playing uh, like that juniors. Tri- <laughs> maybe that tricked us into thinking that better things were coming. But look, I think Carter's been fine when he's played. Like, definitely better than he was last year. He's been more involved in the Bulls' offense. They're running more elbow sets for him. But I, I definitely wouldn't call what he's done a breakout. And he's also now dealing with a quad contusion that's had him on the shelf for a couple weeks and should keep him there for a couple more weeks. So probably another whiff on that one. And I think the last pick was yours uh, being OG Ananobi, which OG's been good. He's had a little bit more responsibility than he had last season. I mentioned a couple episodes ago that I think his defense has actually been the mild disappointment to me. I still think it's been excellent, but he's also been on the shelf with... Is it a hamstring injury, a calf injury, it, some kind yeah, of leg it was injury? Yeah, a hamstring injury. Uh, he's missed seven or eight games. Is supposed to be back soon. But a, a cursed list of breakout candidates, to say the very least. Yeah, it's uh, it's honestly depressing to hear you read them all out. I, I almost want to end the pod now and, and honestly maybe take a sabbatical if needed. I, I don't know how the listeners can trust us. So so today we'll cheat. We'll, we'll use games being played as evidence. <laughs> We won't have to predict anything. We'll just tell you who's breaking out. Uh, no, but in all honesty... Yeah. Um, we should get out of the predictions yeah. business probably after yeah. this. I So actually, I, I did go back and 
listen to our pod from last season when we did this just to see if we had whiffed as badly and we actually did pretty well like we had we, we had bam in there jonathan isaac uh shay there were like a couple of whiffs like i think i picked miles bridges as one of them he obviously hasn't quite broken out that he's made some incremental improvements but like we did much much better last year than this year and i do think just generally speaking i i think we should never really be speaking with any degree of authority when we talk about player development right like we can for a while there, talk i, I didn't know where you were we, going i was gonna be like you realize they're paying us to, to talk basketball <laughs> well no, I, but think, I know what you mean you know you I and know i you, you and i are generally pretty good at deciphering what we yeah. see which is sort of the purpose of this episode but i think when it comes to projection i mean we're not scouts and there are scouts who do this for a living and are very good at it but even then it's like I, I think it's way more art than science, you know, and, and you can see stuff that you think is a positive indicator, whether it's stats based, whether it's eye test based, and you can have your ideas and your opinions about whether a player is going to follow a particular development track. You're going to bring priors and biases into that assessment. I think whether it's, you know, you like a particular player archetype or that player, you know, maybe reminds you of a player that took a particular development track in the past. But ultimately, I think we we never really know how how this is going to go when it comes to player development, right? And I think, you know, we'll get into it when, when we talk about the players who have broken out this season. But sometimes it just kind of comes out of nowhere. And whether it's a team or a development staff or a scouting staff seeing something in that player that other teams and staffs didn't see, or that player seeing something in themselves that other people couldn't see. Uh, it's just really hard to, to know and to predict um, where those players are or aren't going to improve. And so, you know, that's a, a, as I'm as much talking to myself, I think as anybody else and saying like, <laughs> Yeah, of course, we're going to offer our opinions and give our thoughts about what players can be in the future. That's part of the fun, I think, of what we do. But to say that we actually like have any genuine insight into how pl- the player development process is going to work out, I think would be grossly misrepresenting well, ourselves. Yeah, I think player development is the one area where I don't care who you are, it's very... You know, as you mentioned, it's very really unique to different circumstances. It's unique to different teams. It's unique to it's it's unique to so many different things. And also, I think oftentimes when you're talking about breakout players, it's obviously young players in the first few years of development. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying last week when I went on that Hawks tangent and we talked about the Hawks defense. Is that like, you know, and maybe we'll talk about him today. I don't know, but John Collins, for example, um, and what he's done on the defensive end. You know, even when I was writing that Hawks piece a couple of weeks ago and I was like thinking about it and thinking about how I thought John Collins was like an empty calorie stat stuffer, right? Which he kind of was early in his career. But I would think about it then and be like, this guy's only in his what, like fourth season? Why did I think because he was an empty calorie stat stuffer on bad teams in his first three years, why did I think that's just who he was? You know, so I think sometimes it's even just that, like reminding ourselves that obviously, yes, you want to go based on what you see and what you hope and whatever, but you also have to be open-minded when it comes to young players. That is very possible. There is a component of their game that you haven't even seen or heard of or imagined yet because they're young players who are developing. Right. In some cases, it is the fact that like they haven't shown that side of their games before. I mean, that's, that's sort of just a limitation, I think, of people in general, you know, is that we tend to imagine the future as a sort of continuation of the present or we think of things developing in a linear fashion when we're extrapolating or projecting outwards and it does it requires you know not even necessarily an element of imagination but just an open-mindedness like you said to the fact that yeah things can change things are going to change players are going to develop in unpredictable ways for better and for worse so yeah, of course, we're going to offer our opinions on this stuff, but I don't think we should pass it off as any kind of foresight or knowledge. Right. Not when it comes to development. Everything else. You come to pound <laughs> the rock for your authorities. Uh, for ironclad Correct. takes. Okay, quickly then, before we move on to breakout players, you mentioned everybody in the Eastern Conference essentially being a Fugazi. 
And that's a that's an accurate summation. So, so so give me your ironclad take on this. Which team, which which quote unquote contender in the Eastern Conference is the biggest Fugazi team? I mean, I'd probably still go with the Bucks. <laughs> All right. <laughs> oh, oh, what? Yeah, their point differentials real high, but a good indicator of playoff success. You know, they're no, no, no. Look, I, I, I've been I've been actually watching quite a bit of Bucks recently, and I have some thoughts that we're not going to okay. delve into on this okay. pod because we don't yeah. have that kind of time, but. I'm looking forward to getting into it. Not that we haven't talked about the Bucks enough. I mean, Jesus yeah. Christ. I, I think there there are actually some positive indicators outside of just yeah. their point and, differential. And I don't think they're the worst of the East contenders. The reason I'm saying they're the biggest Fugazi is Boston, for example. You know, I, I've shared my concerns about Boston from the preseason because of Kemba Walker's knee and, and just some of the stuff they lost there. Like, so I'm not as sold on them. So yeah, they're a Fugazi too, but they're not. I also didn't come in or people didn't come in as high on them because of some other factors. For me, it's Brooklyn, Milwaukee, Philly, and I'm trying to think, I guess Boston kind of as teams, people really, really believe in as contenders. I mean, you know, I believed in Miami. I still think they can write the ship, but if we're talking about the serious contenders, the biggest Fugazi is Milwaukee. Philly to me, as much as I, you know, there's Fugazis up and down that roster, you know, Embiid has turned a corner this year and that's big for them. They need to get them help, but He's turned a corner. Brooklyn, as I've noted, there's plenty of reasons why they're frugated, and especially during the regular season. But I still just believe in that talent and their want to on the defensive end when it matters. Milwaukee, for me, is the one team that, like, I just don't believe in them, you know? I've seen this too often. And yes, they are doing some things different. A lot of it is still the same. I don't believe you can win a championship with Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday being your crunch time closers. Okay. Yeah. I mean, look, it is what it is. I asked you for the take. You you provided the take, and uh, we'll have to. Okay. Then real quick, you you give me who's your biggest who's your biggest fugazi of the East contenders. I guess I'd probably go with Philly, just because I think they've obviously looked very good, but I see some smoke and mirrors in some of what they're doing. I still don't trust in a playoff setting their offense as good as like their late game offense this year has been great. And they've really had a lot of success playing through Embiid in the post, which is kind of, I mean, that's their best option given the lack of off the dribble initiators in the half court. I mean, it's the same problem. We've talked about it so many times. Simmons and Embiid have played great together. And a lot of that I think has to do with Embiid's improved passing and awareness out of the post and dealing with double teams. And obviously defensively, they've been a beast. But I don't know. It's just, it's kind of like a trust factor thing in the same way that you don't trust the Bucks because of your concerns about Coach Bud and, and Middleton and Holiday being late game closers. It's like a lot of the Sixers' success has come down to like how well Tobias Harris has played. And honestly, Ben Simmons over the last couple of weeks has been really, really good. I, I don't know that I trust those guys in like a high leverage playoff situation. And if it comes down to them relying on having to run their offense through Embiid in the post. I'm just still not sure if that gets it done in the league today, like with the way that teams play defense. It's also hard to get the ball into the post against like playoff type defenses that are valuing every single possession. Yeah, and it's it could work, right? We saw how well it worked for Denver in the playoffs last year, but... The big difference was Jamal Murray was absolutely popping off in the playoffs last year. And it's really hard to overstate how much of an impact that had on what Nikola Jokic was able to do in the post. Because teams were having to switch guys onto Murray in the pick and roll. And Jokic was continually going up against mismatches in the post. And he was able to run dribble handoffs with Murray who could, you know, essentially grab and pull. It's just like siphoning so much defensive attention away from him, or it's a guy who's able to punish whatever extra defensive attention is going Jokic's way. The Sixers have shooters who can sort of theoretically do that, but I think the lack of a player who you trust to initiate, you know, to run a pick and roll, to consistently shoot off of the dribble, I think that makes it way harder for Embiid to do what Jokic did in the playoffs last year as a post player. Yeah, it's the same issues plaguing the Sixers, man. We'll move on in like 15 seconds. But even just uh, Thursday night's game, Ben Simmons was great as a two-way player in that game. Fan friggin' tastic Maybe his best game of the season. One of the best games of his career. And then, not that it's 
nearly all his fault, but it just something about the, the way that last play unfolded. You know, Robert Covington made a great play for the steal, but not the most sure-handed inbound from Ben Simmons. And Tobias Harris, I, I watched that replay like 31 times. Yo, look, do not put that on Ben Dude, Simmons, go- man. That was a that was a horribly designed. Nobody got no open. One moved. Nobody screened no one for moved. anybody. No one screened for anybody. In addition, a not sure-handed pass from Ben Simmons. Watch, I watched it replay like 31 times. That is a typical Ben Simmons. Like I don't know how to put 48 minutes of my best basketball together. I'll give you 47 minutes and 59 seconds. Had some laziness in that pass. And Tobias Harris, and just no interest in going to meet the ball, thinking like, nah, it's cool. Like, this is the regular. It's like, again, great play by Covington, but this lack of a sense of urgency, which fair enough, it's the regular season. It just, I even tweeted, there's still some too much Sixers in this Sixers team because that to me was like a perfect little thing of Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris. Like, when the going gets tough, guess what? I don't want those guys on my team. I, I don't not want them on my team. I just would like for them to be complemented by a a more sure-handed playmaker and shot maker. But I, I don't even know. Like I'm, I'm the one who's out here saying <laughs> the Sixers are the three games, so I don't know why I'm the, why I'm defending them. But I do want to know. So you said you went back and watched that play 31 yeah. times. Who was that play supposed to but be for? What were they trying I, to? Get? I have no clue because no one was moving, and as you mentioned, no one was screening for each other. So I don't know. That to me seemed like that might have just been it, which I don't understand. Or maybe they were going to try to hit and beat in the post, but like I don't know, something didn't materialize. Someone didn't do their job. Is probably what I imagine happened. There was miscommunication, and someone who was supposed to start an action with either a screen or some movement just didn't do it, and everything fell apart. Yeah. It was well defended. It was by like I said, like he he was ostensibly guarding the inbounder. He was playing free yeah. safety, and he but, blew but it if, up. But if you just like watch the way it unfolded, like even Harris, like he he didn't go like meet the ball. He just like kind of casually. It, it it just didn't seem like there was any urgency there. And again, fair enough. It's a regular season game in February. But you know, I'm not even a Sixers fan, and it almost just like triggered too many. Like, uh, I don't like this. Look, obviously, I'd take those guys on my team. You know, I, I've been adamant that Tobias Harris is having a great year. And if he can do what he's doing, that's huge for the Sixers because to have a guy his size be able to create for himself could actually unlock a lot for them in the playoffs. But until he does it in the playoffs, like he to me is the ultimate 82 game player. And in the closest thing you'll get to a 16 game moment in the regular season, saw it from him again. All right. You want to talk breakout players? God, let's do it. Start us off. We get derailed far too easily anytime the Bucks or the Sixers come up. Okay, so I, I compiled a list of 10 players, and three of them I've essentially labeled as like honorable mention because I think they fall into kind of their own category. So I don't need to mention them at the top. I can kind of just mention them at the end because I think it's a it's an interesting sort of subcategory that I want to touch on briefly. But the seven guys who I would qualify as unquestioned breakout players this year are Jeremy Grant, DeAndre Hunter, Hamadou Diallo, nice. Mikhail Bridges, yep. Christian Wood, Chris Boucher, and Jalen Brown. How many of those guys are on your list? Who of those guys do you think is the most interesting? Who do you want to talk about? Uh, okay, so Grant was on my list. Hunter was on my list. Diallo was not, but I love, uh, love the pick. Boucher was. Wood was. Brown was not. But again, I like that pick because even though he was already a good player, he did take it. He has taken it to another level. I'll let you pick where you want to start. I mean, maybe you should start with Grant because he's kind of the most obvious one. But uh, yeah, hell of a breakout. Oh my God. I mean, look, Jeremy Grant has been a role player his entire career. I don't care how bad the Pistons are. Like to make that jump from role player to featured scorer as seamlessly as he's made it especially in his seventh season in the league is really hard and really impressive. And by the way, the Pistons for as bad as they are, are like basically a net neutral when he's on the floor, they get outscored by like a billion points per hundred possessions when he's on the bench, but he's been awesome. And I just did not see this coming at all. Like I didn't love the contract from Detroit's perspective. I, didn't love the career decision from his perspective to turn down the same contract from Denver because I thought the role he was playing there suited him better than a featured role in Detroit. But he has proven me 
And I think a lot of other idiots who purport to be authorities on this stuff, dead ass wrong. So he's averaging like 24 points a game, shooting 48% from two, 39% from three, 87% from the line on a boatload of attempts. He's doing it with a measure of self-creation and, you know, both as a driver and a pull-up shooter. Uh, I mean, he's been one of the most efficient isolation scorers in the league. He's, he's scoring 1.08 points per possession in isolation, which is 78th percentile on a not insignificant volume. It's not one of those things where he, he showed flashes of this ability, but there was just some skepticism that he'd be able to scale that up to this degree, right? Like there weren't really even that many flashes. Not that he wasn't very good in his role last year, but I mean flashes of this. Because because some of the stuff was there in terms of, you know, his spot-up three-point shooting, his ability to attack closeouts, uh, you know, his off-ball slashing. But the on-ball stuff really does feel like it came out of nowhere. I mean, you know, good things did not happen when he put the ball on the floor last year. Even when it was something as simple as him dribbling the ball in the post. So for him to be operating as a number one option, basically doubling his volume across the board, I'm talking field goal attempts, three-point attempts, free throw attempts, creating a ton of his own shots, creating some shots for others. I think playmaking is like the one part of this that's still a a significant work in progress. But doing all that with zero drop-off in scoring efficiency, uh, no uptick at all in his turnover rate, and honestly, very little slippage at the defensive end of the floor is absolutely remarkable there are a lot of guys who want the opportunity to be like the number one guy or the guy on uh, on a team and then they get their opportunity and realize you know the team's bad their efficiency tanks uh as you mentioned like that yes the team is bad but that the efficiency side has not been the case with jeremy grant like this guy has done it and he's done it well as i've said many times before when people talk about good players putting up great numbers on a bad team and how it kind of seems like fraudulent but when a guy does it the way Jeremy Grant's doing it and does it efficiently and does it well, it's almost more impressive because he's got less talent around him to help, like to share the burden. So everyone knows where the ball's going. Everyone knows what's coming and they still can't stop it. They still can't stop your ability to impact the game. To me, that's more impressive. So I, I've got nothing to say uh, you know, negatively about what Jeremy Grant's doing this year. He deserves all of the praise. You know, He deserves all-star buzz despite the fact the Pistons, you know, are one of the two worst teams in the league. The thing that I think is very interesting about it is usually a team like the Pistons, who's obviously, you know, in need of a rebuild, as they always are, you land a player like Jeremy Grant, who seems very much like is going, should be a foundational piece of your future. If you're going to build the next great competitive Pistons team, Jeremy Grant's going to be on it. But the strange thing is, is not that he's old, but he's all, you know, he's not like a 23 year old third or, or fourth year player here where we're talking about like, this guy can now be a Piston for the next eight years. And and that'll be his entire prime. Like he's, he's a, he's a late bloomer, obviously. And the Pistons are so far away and need so much young talent and probably need to build through the draft that even though they've found in a way, this gem, I still don't think the timeline works out. And so it's weird because it, it's a great story and he's like found a landing spot in a home in a way. But at the same time, then you start thinking about it. And it's like, actually, Jeremy Grant would uh, really move the needle for a lot of contenders. Look, I know he just came from Denver and, you know, he, he wasn't doing this at this at this level there. But at the same time, it's like whether it's a failure on the Nuggets part, a minor failure on Grant's part or maybe an unwillingness to, I, I don't know. I realize he couldn't be the number one option in Denver. Like he wasn't going to put up the scoring numbers, you know, as the number three at best behind Nikola Jokic and, and Jamal Murray, maybe the number four behind Michael Porter. But he's also doing everything else a little better too. And I don't know if that's just motivation because he's getting the ball more and he's like the guy and it's, you know, human nature to feel more engaged when you're empowered. But, ah, uh, it's just, like I was saying with the Sixers thing earlier, like I'm not even a Sixers fan and, and it, it worries me. And I look at this and I'm like, I'm not even a Nuggets fan. And I'm still like, oh, like you were there. You were like, you were perfect there. And for Denver, like you had them. Yeah. I mean, they did. They offered him yeah. the same contract to come back. If Jeremy Grant at even 75% of this Detroit Jeremy Grant is in Denver right now, that team can win a championship. 
he he really is exactly yes. what they need. Right. And, you know, we, we've talked about it on this pod before, kind of like, the, you know, what they're missing, I think, is a, a big forward defender. You know, a guy who can essentially guard threes and fours at a high level. He can play off of the ball like he can play off of Jokic because he's a really good cutter. But he can also be, you know, a secondary creator or even a primary creator, as he's shown this season. You know, whether he's doing it with transitional lineups or whether he's running pick and roll with Jokic, which is something that we basically just like didn't see him do last year at all. And look to, to your point about him not being on Detroit's timeline. I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, he's 26, right? Like his he's, he's essentially just entering his prime right now. And we don't necessarily know how long that prime is going to last, but like if he winds up playing out this contract and re-upping with Detroit, and staying there until his age 32 or age 33 season is I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that he's going to be part of a good Pistons team while he's there. Um, will they be a championship contender? I mean, I don't know, maybe not, but I look to, to have a, a star breakout like this from a 26 year old player, I think is, is a pretty good place for a franchise like Detroit that hasn't had a lot to get excited about in recent years. Uh, that's a that's a decent place for them to be, especially because, you know, they're really effectively tanking this season. Like they are executing the perfect tank in that a lot of their young guys are showing important and meaningful growth. They're quite entertaining. They're beating a lot of really good teams and yet they're still losing games and, and positioning themselves to add a high pick to what's looking like a suddenly, you know, not so hopeless core of players moving forward. So I actually think they're in a decent spot. Um, I do have just one more stat to throw out there to show how kind of ridiculous Jeremy Grant's been this year. His usage rate is over 26% and his turnover rate is under 7%. Only six other players have ever done that before over a full season. And basically all of them are big men. So I think, you know, the fact that he has been able to, to scale up his production to that degree, like I said, there's been no drop off in his efficiency. His true shooting is about where it was last season, around 59%. And he's just not turning the ball over at all. And some of that may have something to do with the fact that he, he is not passing the ball a whole heck of a lot and the playmaking still has a ways to go. But uh, that level of ball control from a player who we certainly wouldn't have pegged as you know, a ball dominant player in the past is really quite impressive. Let's talk DeAndre Hunter. Sure, man. I'll give you the floor since I know you had written about him recently. You wrote about the Hawks improved defense. He's been a big part of that. Uh, he's been out for the last little while, unfortunately. And he's going to be out a lot longer. So he had, I think it was a minor knee surgery, but the Hawks are saying it's like seven to 10 weeks from when he had the surgery, which was this week. So you're looking at absolute earliest, like late March, probably more like mid to late April. That's a bummer. If someone had said to you coming into the season, think about guys that are going to be legitimate, like all defensive team candidates. Like that's how good he was defending. Great on ball defender, a really good part of the Hawks, you know, one of the most important parts of the Hawks improved defense this season. And someone said to you, yeah, think of the guys that are going to be like some of the best on ball defenders, like all defensive team candidates. And one of them is going to average about 17 points per game while shooting 61% from two point range. You know, while being a 36, 37% three-point shooter on pretty high volume, 87% free throw shooter, you're definitely not assuming DeAndre Hunter's one of them, but you're thinking about like a pretty elite player, man. Like if you really think about those numbers with his defense, that is a pretty damn good player. And he's an NBA sophomore. But he was an old, he was right. an old rookie yeah. too, which maybe makes it that much more surprising, right? right? It's not like... A 19-year-old who came into the league super raw and is really figuring it out is in his second year. It's like, for an older rookie, he was pretty damn disappointing last season. And I think when you have an older rookie who comes in and, and has such a disappointing rookie year, and this gets back into sort of what we were saying at the top of the pod, where it's like, you just never really know. But I think historically, like, that's... Obviously, that doesn't bode very well, right? Like you pick an older rookie because you think they're going to be more NBA ready. So if they come in and have like a pretty lousy rookie year, then that's cause for concern. But he, he's obviously taken a huge, huge step. Just everything he's done defensively. Like I mentioned the on-ball stuff, just his um, his ability to switch, obviously, and guard up 
has been big for them when they go small. You know, they're playing a lot of big minutes. So it just his his ability to cover for Trey Young a lot of times has been huge on switches. Like he he was so important to what the Hawks were doing. And it's a real bummer that he's going to miss a lot of time. And look, honestly, he's been important enough to that Hawks team that like this could it's not gonna tank them in the sense that I think they're completely out of the playoff picture, but you know, they were hanging around five hundred a little over. They had a top ten defense through a quarter of the season. And if they had continued anything close to that they should have been at worst a play-in team now i definitely think it gets dicey like i think the east is that compact their margin for error is that thin they've had some other injuries too so it's a bummer all around and given how long he's going to be out we might not talk about deandre hunter again the rest of this season so i wanted to make sure that we at least gave him a couple minutes today because his play deserved it absolutely and and we've already seen their defense start to slip pretty significantly without him because like Cam Reddish has sort of had to slide into that role as their starting three. And, you know, Reddish has some defensive tools without a doubt, but I think you've mentioned this. He's a gambler. He doesn't always make the best decisions, especially off the ball. And I think they're really feeling the effects of Hunter's absence. I think Hunter actually showed a decent amount as an on-ball defender last year, but the off-ball stuff for him was maybe where he was demonstrating some rookie hiccups. I think he's been a lot better and more disciplined in that regard. I think he looks like he's improved his mobility to me. I think last year it seemed like maybe he was going to be best utilized as like a small ball four because he wasn't the quickest guy on the perimeter. But... I think at both ends of the floor, he he's played like a pure three this year, right? And that's defensively and also offensively where I, I think arguably the leap for him has been even bigger because, you know, he's doing some stuff off of the bounce. He's shooting the absolute hell out of the ball. And, and he's finishing way, way better at the rim than he did last year. Like if you look at just like his three-level scoring, he's shooting it way better from three. Um, his finishing at the rim, he's at 66%. This year, he was at 55% last year. And he's shooting 61% in floater range, where he was like at 29% last year. And like he's over 50% as a mid-range shooter. So I think, look, some of those numbers are going to come down, but he's scoring well from all three levels. And a decent amount of that are like shots that he's been able to create himself. And, you know, shooting off of the dribble, driving it to the rim. Really, really impressive second year leap for him and fantastic news for the Hawks who traded up to get him, right? I think they traded eight, number eight and number 15, number like 16. That, yeah. it, it wound up being, you know, the Pelicans took Jackson Hayes, Nikhil Alexander-Walker and the Hawks moved out to four. And like, if Hunter hadn't panned out, that obviously would have been a huge, huge disappointment for them. Big thing for Atlanta, and I put it in that piece too, is on the defensive end, keeping Trey... Cam Reddish and Kevin Huerter separated and mm-hmm. and Hunter gave them the ability to do that as well as some of the other guys they've got on the roster that are just not playing right now or hurt like Chris Dunn with Hunter out and some of those other injuries they're playing those three guys together a lot and Collins and Capella's defensive improvements aren't going to make up for having those three guys all on the court so yeah disappointing now for the for the Hawks but if DeAndre Hunter is anywhere near the player he's shown to be the, the last two months they're in good shape who you got next? Okay, so you mentioned you didn't have Hamadou right. Diallo. I've definitely been watching a lot of them this week, though, because I wrote about the Thunder today, actually. Okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, like I said, I'm almost mad at myself. I didn't have them on my list when you mentioned them. There are a number of candidates I think you could pick for that yep. Thunder team, which has just been way more fun and more interesting, I think, than you or I expected. And Diallo to me is the guy who's popped. I mean, Shea is obviously like far and away their best player. And like, he's made meaningful strides this year. He's been awesome. Lou Dort, his offensive game, I think looks miles ahead of where it was at last year. And obviously defensively, he's been a beast. But Diallo is the guy who looks the most like a different player to me than he looked last season. I mean, really in his first two seasons, he was basically just like a pure hustle player, right? Like a fast an energetic guy whose primary utility came in the open floor and at the defensive end where he could create some chaos. But like, he wasn't a guy who'd flashed much in the way of offensive skills. Or playmaking. Really raw. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like, it's been, he's been a completely different player this year. He's handling the ball. He's running pick and roll. His touch around the rim 
in particular is in a different stratosphere from where it's been in the past. I mean, he's hitting contorting layups. I think he's using the glass really nicely from tough angles. He's hitting all manner of floaters. He's finishing under control, even when he's driving to the rim at full speed. And that's just not a level of touch that he's really exhibited before. Like the athleticism obviously has always been there, but the mid-air body control, I don't think really has been. Uh, So he's shooting 70% at the rim, which is way up from 57% last year. And his true shooting percentage is up from 49%, which is miserable, to 57%, which is like solidly above average. And he has done that despite a significant uptick in his usage. So that's been really surprising and impressive to me. Uh, The jumper is still the missing ingredient here. Like it's still extremely shaky and the mechanics on it are not great. But for now, at least he's mitigating that by just getting to the rim virtually at will. Like he's got a great first step. And I think what's maybe most impressive about this is like how many of his buckets he's creating for himself. So 32% of his baskets were unassisted last year. 55% of his baskets are unassisted this year, which is, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty crazy level of self-creation for a guy who's been strictly like a complimentary role player, essentially, you know, a hustle player in the past for him to be creating more than half of his baskets for himself is, uh, is pretty wild. And, you know, that's his handle is much tighter. So he's spending a lot more time with the ball in his hands. And, and like you said, he's flashed some playmaking chops too. He's basically tripled his assist rate. That's the thing um, that's popped off the page statistically for me and watching him that has popped off the screen the most is this guy went from like, I, I never even considered him as a playmaker to being a pretty good one. Yeah, the Thunder, like they've played a couple of games now without Shea and without George Hill in the lineup where they basically started him at point guard. And he's held up shockingly well. <laughs> in that alignment and uh one of those games was against the timberwolves and he wound up with 10 assists and like th- they were mostly garden variety like swing the ball from the point to the wing for a three or enter the ball into the post kind of assists but a few of them like required some pretty high level did he have 10 total assists last season <laughs> i don't know but he, he averaged less than one per game whereas now he's up to like two yeah. and a half if you look at like and, the per 100 possessions rates and even his like his assist percentage i'm pretty sure is quadrupled <laughs> and and also his free throw rate like that's another thing that's way way up and that's the result of the pressure that he's putting on the rim both with his speed but also the, his finishing ability and his improved dribble drive game that's like forcing opponents to put him on the line he, he's averaging 6.5 free throw attempts per 36 minutes which is a massive number for a complimentary ball handler and a huge jump from last year. As I wrote in the piece that went up today, the Thunder are both the most annoying or peskiest bad team right now and also the most promising bad team. They are a thorn in the NBA side today and a potential sleeping giant of tomorrow. The lanky bridge that connects those two points is actually, it's Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And the reason I wanted to mention him is because, look, he doesn't fit the breakout player mold per se in that he was already a breakout player last year. You know, he was the second best player in a really good playoff team and, you know, learned beside and thrived beside Chris Paul. But I do want to shout Shea out on this show just for like 30 seconds because, you know, that rant I went on earlier with Jeremy Grandin about how it's actually more impressive when a player puts up big numbers efficiently on a really bad team with like few options around him on a very anemic offensive team with few release valves around him shagel just alexander is averaging 22 plus points and six plus assists on 61 plus percent true shooting think about how absurd that is this guy's usage has gone up the quality of his team has gone way down like this as much as you know as fun as they are and as hard as they try on both ends of the court they're not good right now offensively especially like there is not a lot of talent around Shea and he's putting up pretty ridiculous numbers on insane efficiency I like in the piece I I listed the 10 guys in the three-point era who have averaged 22 and 6 on 60 percent plus true shooting and it's literally it's like LeBron, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Devin Booker's done it, James Harden, Steph Curry, Kevin Durant. It's it's like those guys. And Shea's doing that with no help. 
what he's doing is insane. Like he he's like an honorable mention breakout player because he's found a way to break out on top of his breakout. Like they've got a foundational star locked in there. They got to find a couple more. They have the means to do it because of you know their draft capital and and you know the fact they should get a good pick this year and all that. But yeah, uh, Hamadou Diallo definitely more of a real breakout player. But did want to shout out Shy because what he's doing is stupid. Yeah, and I mean, you mentioned Grant doing what he's doing in that offensive environment in Detroit. Like, it's arguably more impressive what Shea's doing. He's leading the league in drives per game. I think he's driving to the rim like 25 times a game, some ridiculous number like that. And, you know, he's doing all that. And you mentioned the efficiency, the true shooting. Like, there's very little spacing on this OKC team, right? Like, there's not a lot in Detroit either, but there might be even less in OKC. For, for him to be puncturing defenses and like you know wending his way to the rim in the herky-jerky way that he does time and time again and finishing there and and hitting those wonky floaters that he hits and and shooting the ball quite well um it's been really impressive for him to be doing what he's doing in that environment where you know there isn't a ton of talent around him to take defensive attention away you know for him to be doing that in his age 21 season yeah i think like the future in OKC looks pretty bright. And to go back to Diallo, it, it's really important and meaningful for them to get those kind of like, pl- you know, player development stories, because I've talked about this before. The, the Thunder have this bright future that for the most part exists theoretically because it's draft capital that doesn't represent an actual player. And when it comes to like their actual pool of young players that are worth getting excited about it's like a pretty shallow pool you know it's Shea it's Dort um you know Darius Baisley is interesting and and now I think you can add Diallo to that mix like pretty comfortably and it being the Thunder I don't know whether they're actually going to hang on to him or whether he's the kind of player they will look to turn into a trade piece but to me he looks like a legitimate long-term piece for them and that's really important, you know, like it can't all just be draft picks, right? I think there has to be some present day talent for them to get excited about as well. And he, to me, has been one of the more unheralded player development stories in the league. This year. Um, all right. Who who do you want to go to next? I mean, was there anybody that I didn't mention on my list that you really want to There were a few. Did you, did you want to quickly finish your list or? Well, sure. So, uh, I mean, Christian Wood is another one. Kind of going back to what I was saying in the, the Jeremy Grant piece is like, you know, some sometimes when you have a quote unquote breakout player, it's a result of a player, you know, having flashed this stuff in the past and now just essentially getting the reps to be able to showcase it in a larger role. And I think that describes Wood to a certain extent because we did see him do a lot of the stuff he was doing now last season, especially in the second half of last season. And a lot of the raw numbers leap is just a result of scaling up his already impressive permanent production to the big minutes and the central role he is now playing in Houston. But two things about that. Uh, one, scaling up production to this level is actually very hard to do. And most of the time doesn't translate the way minutes adjusted stats suggest, especially for a late bloomer like Wood, who had only really shown this kind of pop for like 40 games that's last that's why year. i always go after people that use per 36 numbers <laughs> and yeah like it's you know okay it's nice but like per 36 wow it, it can make the numbers look really impressive but when you're a player that opponents are game right. planning for when you actually have to do it against opposing starting units Doing that is actually really hard. So just the fact that he has scaled it up to the level that he has is worthy of a ton of praise. Second thing is, even acknowledging that, I do think he's meaningfully improved this year. You know, where, like I talked, I think it was, was it last episode when we were talking about the Rockets defense? I talked about um, just how much better he's reading the floor at that end. Um, And I don't think it's to the point that he's a plus defender. But he's holding his own as a full-time five, you know, last line of defense, holding opponents to 52% shooting at the rim and doing it for one of the best defensive teams in the league 
And even offensively, as good as he was last year, you know, he was at 65% true shooting last year. So he was obviously, you know, a very efficient finisher, but like, I didn't expect him to be this guy, you know, shooting 56% from the field and 42% from three on high volume and, and not just getting all of his offense as a finisher out of the pick and roll, you know, whether it's on the roll or on the pop, both of which he does at a very high level, but he can also face up, you know, put the ball on the floor, take big guys off the bounce, overpower smaller players in the post. Like he, he's been very, very good. And he's another guy who's injured right now. And, and hopefully he is able to heal up soon. That ankle injury looked pretty nasty. I don't know if yes. you saw that, but it was, it was rough. Um, so I don't know how long he's going to be out, but the Rockets really need him back. They're struggling badly without him. I think, I mean, he he's giving that team and that fan base a future to feel somewhat excited about, which is no small feat given what they've been through the last few right. months. So I give him a ton of credit for, you know, taking what looked like it may have just been a flash in the pan for 30 or 40 games toward the end of last year and converted it into legitimate all-star caliber production. Like we're going to talk all-stars, I think next week, he's going to be firmly in that mix for me. I think he's been that good. You also mentioned Chris Boucher, who was on my list as well. His shooting has come down a bit since just an absolute scorching start to the season, but he's still Mm -hmm. been, this is more of an indictment, I guess, on the the rest of the bigs thereafter that come into the season with, but he's been by far their best center. And um, look, if it wasn't for the leap Boucher has taken, this already, you know, disappointing Raptors team would be a hell of a lot worse. He's still not the best decision maker. You know, there are still little things like he still missed times and just over jumps in general for some rebounds or to block a shot and then ends up out of the out of position for a rebound. He still makes some weird decisions on the defensive end sometimes. And so his defense isn't quite as impactful as you might think it is if all you're doing is seeing the block highlights and celebrating his loud defensive moments. But he has been, I think, a little better on the defensive end. You know, he's become more of a shooting threat. He's really been active on the offensive glass. I think he's a better screener than he was last year. And I don't I don't know what that, I don't know if it's a, a bit more strength or just a little bit more smarts and, and studying the game mm-hmm. and even, you know, just playing more with Lowry and Van Vliet and maybe getting a feel for what they want um, from their screeners. But he's been better across the board, even regardless of the numbers. I think the question for me with Boucher is like, even on this Raptors team, for example, like I still think the best option for them would have would be to have a competent starting center, a real center, and have Boucher as kind of like a super sub, right? I think he can really carve out a great role for himself as like a sixth or seventh man on a really good team. Like he he he's good to be he should be in the rotation and be like the sixth, seventh man on a good team. But I don't quite think I'm ready to say like he he's a starter on a great team yet. And I realize like numbers wise, per minute wise, it, it probably looks like he is, but I'm not quite ready to go there yet. And I think also ideally you want him to be more of a four or five. Right. And and because of the Raptors center situation, he's playing exclusively at the five this year, which has been great for them offensively. But defensively, I think is where you maybe start to run into some concern. The Raptors problem is that their best center isn't even a center. At the start of the season, the Raptors really had a hard time scoring because they couldn't get to the rim. And if you look at like the on-off numbers with Boucher, like their rate of at-rim attempts skyrockets with him on the floor. And that has to do with both his ability to get to the rim. Like he's been an incredible role man. 1.3 points per possession as a role man this season. One of the best marks in the entire league. That also has to do with his ability to space the floor from the center position and how much that's opening up driving lanes for the rest of the Raptors. And he just, like his shootings come down a little bit from the start of the season, but he's still way up, you know, well over 40%, shooting the absolute hell out of it, despite that pretty preposterous release, you know, the trebuchet. All of that's been very impressive. And defensively, I do think, you mentioned the strength, right? And I think that's actually been noticeable, even if it's not quite noticeable, like to the naked eye, because he's obviously still very willowy. But I think for one thing, like his rebounding has been better. It's still not the best because this is a guy who's like 200 pounds playing center. But his reads off the glass are better than they were when, like, I think last year he he was like 
a cat chasing a laser kind of like just sort of guessing at where these rebounds were going to land. And he still does that sometimes, but his positioning is way better. His reads are better. And his second jump is so good that sometimes it doesn't even matter. Right. Cause he can just like tap the ball to himself multiple times, which has, has made him a force on the offensive glass as well. But his strength has helped him. You mentioned the screening um, and also just like the finishing through contact, I think at the rim and that's getting into the free throw line more. That's, that's allowing him to, like shoot an insane percentage at the rim and he's also just like very sure-handed and and that wasn't always the case right like he catches almost everything and Kyle Lowry like they have a great synergy in the two-man game him and Lowry and Lowry is a guy who will throw some sort of unexpected passes right and if you're not ready for them like they'll hit you in the fingertips but he he seemingly catches everything and I think the the improvement in his hands has been big um, he, he's still like leaving his feet to contest shots is still as natural to him as breathing. That's something I still think that he needs to tone down a little bit at the defensive end. If he actually wants to be a legitimate plus defender, did you, ha- do you have anything else? No, no, I think, uh, I think I've made my peace with who he is and who he isn't. <laughs> okay. So who else do I have here? Mikhail Bridges. We talked before the season about how interested we were in DeAndre Ayton and what he could mean as a swing piece for Phoenix. But Mikhail Bridges has been their third best player this season, right? Yeah, Easily. not close. And the defense we already knew about, and he's been magnificent, you know, particularly as a one-on-one defender. The Suns are basically always going to throw him at the opposing team's best perimeter guy and trust that he is going to make their life extremely difficult and I think from one to four there are very few players he can't guard and as far as guarding twos and threes I'm not sure how many guys in the league are as good as he is I think you could count it on one hand we know about the defense offensively is where I think we've seen more growth Uh, the three-point shooting has been awesome And that's really opened up the rest of his game because guys are closing out hard on him and he's really good at attacking closeouts. He's got that crazy reach so he can sort of fully extend. That just allows him to finish from all kinds of positions. And he's finishing way more of his drives than he did last year. And just generally, he's doing way more off the bounce, you know, showing hints of an in-between game. Um I think he's just an all-around awesome player who's having a great season. And for everything we talked about, about you know, about what was going to make the Suns better this year, obviously Chris Paul, the addition has been huge, and, and I think Paul's been great. Aiton hasn't quite taken the leap, I think, that we thought he might have been capable of. He's been basically the same guy that he was last year. Booker, to me, has actually taken maybe a small step back from where he was last year. Apart from the arrival of Chris Paul, like the biggest thing that has made the Suns way better this year, the the biggest reason that they have a top 10 defense right now is McKill. You finished your list with Jalen Brown, who again is in that kind of zone where like, you know, he's not a traditional breakout player in the sense that he wasn't already a very good NBA player, but he's taken his game to new heights this season. Like he has been, you know, I still think Tatum is the better player and has the higher ceiling also just because of his size and the things he can do at his size. But in terms of just performance this season, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, 1A, 1B, like very interchangeable with how, like that's how good Jalen Brown has been. And if he's this good, the Celtics are really damn scary, man. Yeah. And I don't know if he is this good because a lot of it has been driven by what might be unsustainable shooting. And we've already seen it start yeah. to come down. He was awful against the for Raptors, a while, by the way. He had, he had a tough game, yeah, last night. Um, but for a while, he was shooting like over 60% from mid-range, and we knew that wasn't going to last, and now he's down to like 51%, I think. But he's obviously become a very good shooter. You know, whether he's going to continue to shoot like this is one thing, but just the sheer jump in scoring volume is, is pretty incredible. And like, Brown is a perfect example of what, like, he's sort of the player I had in mind when I was saying, you know, this is more art than science. We really don't know what kind of development track these players are going to take because you look at the player that Jalen Brown was two years ago. I think it would have been 
close to impossible to imagine him becoming the guy that he is now, at least in this short a period of time. Because, you know, yeah, I, I mentioned how well he's shooting the ball, but like the fact that he's shooting, like he's taking so many of those shots off the dribble, you know, creating for himself, creating for his teammates. I think his playmaking is miles ahead of where it was even last year, let alone a couple of years ago. He's shooting 75% at the rim. Uh, he's just become an unbelievable offensive player. And I think, you know, as good as he was last year and as big a leap as he took last year, he's arguably taken an even bigger one this year, which is pretty wild. And yeah, I mean, with a wing duo like that, the Celtics are pretty well set up for the future. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. I've got a few that you didn't mention. I don't think we have to go as deep into that, but we can do them a little more rapid fire style. And maybe you can tell me if you think one's interesting or you you do want to dive a little deeper on on uh, one of them. Sure. A guy that I was never that high on, always thought was a little overrated, and I think has kind of gone under the radar this year in terms of the way he's improved is Terry Rozier in Charlotte. Uh, again, similar to Brown in that a lot of it is shooting that maybe is unsustainable. He's shooting the absolute hell out of the ball. And I think he's been... A little better defensively. I, his defense still kind of comes and goes for me. There are flashes where I'm like, holy hell, Terry Rozier can defend. And then there's other games where I'm like, is this guy even interested tonight? But he's shooting the hell out of the ball. He's become a different kind of offensive player in that his shot profile has changed. He More than half of his shots are now coming from three. And I think he's maybe seems a little more accepting of the role that maybe he can thrive at in the NBA. Maybe it's you know accepting that he's not going to be a star He's not going to be the number one guy on a good team. He might probably not even the number one guy on a bad team. And Charlotte is has been a surprising team. They're still not good, but there's some there's some hope there. A lot of it has to do with Lamelo. Um, Hayward's having a fantastic season, and I think Rozier, like I said, quietly, I think he's kind of slotting in. And uh, yeah, if you haven't watched a lot of Hornets ball, I know most people are going to tune in for Lamelo, but watch Terry Rozier because he has been quietly one of the more improved players this season. Another guy I had at John Collins, you know, I mentioned last week, I do think he's he's going to probably get close to max. And I know you, you know, sent me a message off air last night saying you agree with that. You think he's getting maxed and he deserves it. He's been that good. We talked about his defensive improvement. A guy that uh, a lot of it is empty. But we should acknowledge to produce the way he's producing through a third of an NBA season is pretty impressive. Julius Randle's having a hell of a year in New York. I don't believe in the Knicks as even a play-in team. I don't think Randle's this good and don't think, you know, he's that high on the pecking order on a really good team. But credit where it's due. He's having a hell of a season. And he is mm-hmm. probably the biggest reason the Knicks are where they are right now. So... Take nothing away from him there. I do think Zach Levine has upped his game again. I, He's having an insane exactly. offensive Offensively, season. just insane. continues to take steps. And look, we talked about, you know, not wanting to dismiss young players who are still developing. Like, Do I think Zach Levine is as good, you know, as Devin Booker was when he was the best player on bad teams? Probably not. But I think Booker's a good example of a guy that, look, everyone thought Devin Booker was an empty calorie scorer because the teams were really bad and the Bulls still have a lot to figure out and maybe Levine isn't even there when they figure it out. But I think it's also dangerous to dismiss what Zach Levine's doing as just anti-calorie scoring. Like he's been awesome offensively. Harrison Barnes is having the best season of his career. For, for a Kings team that, you know, surprisingly is in the playoff mix, they're going to fall down to earth. They've got a terrible net rating. They're still a terrible defensive team. I don't think they're hanging around the playoff race, but Harrison Barnes having the best season of his career improved on both sides of the ball has been awesome in the clutch and just seems a lot more in control and, and poised. I've enjoyed watching him this year. I also think it's interesting that he and Buddy Heald are the same age. I thought like Buddy Heald is like three years younger, but yeah, Harrison Barnes has like been around forever. We remember him on those Warriors teams. He's still only 28. Like he still has some good years left in him. And and if he's the player he's showing he is this year, I think 
that's an interesting development, um, not only for the Kings who still have them locked up for a couple of years, but potentially for uh, some contenders who might be interested. And then the one more that I wanted to mention, and it's also a shameless plug of the piece I wrote last week, the all nobody team of guys that were nobodies and have made themselves somebodies this year. There's a few guys on that list. Like one of them is Jay Sean Tate, but he's technically a rookie. So I'm not going to count him, but Nas Reed, who I know you love and were high on him last year before a lot of people even knew who he was. If you don't know who Nas Reed is, undrafted player who cracked the Wolves rotation last year. I believe he's still on a non-guaranteed deal for next year because that's the way things go when you're an undrafted guy who needs to prove himself. But watch this guy play. He's a phenomenal offensive talent. He's a modern offensive coach's dream. He admittedly hates mid-ranges. He doesn't take mid-range shots. He is an absolutely elite finisher inside. He can shoot. He's got a really surprising and nifty floater package that he shows off when he does kind of get in that in-between range, a little closer than a mid-range, not quite at the rim that he uses. Really good offensive player. And he's taken a pretty big step on the defensive end this year to the point where I'm like pretty much ready to say he's a solid two-way big man. And I'm going to venture to guess there are some people who listen to this podcast who are pretty big NBA fans that may never have heard of him before. He was a nobody a year ago. He is a somebody. He should be on a guaranteed deal by next season. And wherever he lands, he's going to help that team out. Also, probably the flattest footed three-point shooter in the if NBA. it works, it works. <laughs> um, I love his jump shot. It's so weird. And yeah, I mean, he, he can pop, he can roll. I really like Nasrid's game. Long, long way to go for him at the defensive end of the floor. But as you mentioned, a really modern offensive package. And, and he has improved on the defensive end. He really has. Like he, he was lost last season. I, I don't think he's a great defender yet, obviously, but not many people get better defensively in Minnesota. He's managed to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I like the Rogier pick too. And I do think an important part of that is just him playing off of the ball more. Like, I, I think that's a role that suited him better. And he's proven he can be a really effective off guard. He's, he's shooting the hell out of the ball. Um, and incidentally, that was one of the guys I picked as a breakout candidate last year. And I think he, he did have a mini breakout last year, but he, he's been even better this season. I mentioned at the top that I had sort of a subcategory where I had three honorable mentions, essentially. And you kind of blew up my spot by naming two of them uh, in, in Randall and Harrison Barnes. So I, I devoted a category essentially to guys that I would describe as having not a breakout, not a leap, but a mid-career bump where they're, you know, veterans who have been in the league for a while, who are having the best seasons of their careers. And it's not necessarily about any major piece of skill development, but more about unlocking better versions of themselves by changing their habits. So the first guy I had on there was CJ McCollum. Nice who before he got injured was just lighting the world on fire. And the big thing for him has just been three-point volume, like taking more than half of his shots from behind the arc, which is way, way higher than anything he has done in the past. I think last season he was taking about a third of his shots from three, and he was up to taking a, like 11 and a half per game and shooting like 45% from behind the arc before he got hurt. And a ton of them were coming off of the dribble as well. And that's just taken his efficiency to completely new heights. But also, I think he's become a pretty solid playmaker where that's always been, I don't know if it's a blind spot, but he's never been a plus playmaker before. And I think he was actually doing that really effectively before he got hurt, had a five to one assist to turnover ratio. So it really sucks that he got injured because he was playing out of his mind. And had he kept it up, he was almost certainly going to get his first all-star nod this season. You mentioned Randall. Uh, and again, I think... It's not necessarily about one element of skill development with him. It's more just like better decision-making across the board. It's like recognition of how to leverage his on-ball gravity and utilize his passing skill. Generally just making quicker and better decisions with the ball. And obviously his assist rate has skyrocketed as a result of that. And he's basically playing point guard for that team. So, and I think he's working a lot harder on defense too. So I think he deserves a lot of credit for that. And with Barnes, a big element of it is that he's shooting the ball really well and better than he has in the past. But I think it's mostly that he's just been better at like moving the chains because he's been kind of a black hole in the past and he's not letting the ball stick. 
Like he, he can go to work against a mismatch in the post, but he's also not going to dither with the ball on the perimeter. Um, and he's not an ace playmaker by any means, but he's making good and productive passes. And he's been more of a connector, I think, than he's been in the past. And, and that's giving a big lift to a Kings team that's been one of the better stories in the league. So, so that's my little subcategory there. And I think Andrew Wiggins and Tobias Harris are a couple of guys who you could include in that category as well. Colin Sexton, earlier career, but we didn't even mention him, you know. He's cooled off from that unbelievable start he had, and I think the Cavs are taking their place near the bottom of the Eastern Conference. Like, even if you look at the point differential, they're, they're getting shellacked, but deserves 15 seconds of a mention on Pound the Rock. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and the Cavs have dealt with injuries, so it's, it's not fair to ding them too hard, and I do think Sexton has been really good. I don't think it like the leap has been substantial enough to call it a breakout, but he, he was definitely like one of my tougher cuts because I do think he's been way better this season. Defensively, he's he's battling harder than he's done in the past. I think he's shown more at that end. I think he's advanced as a playmaker and, and there are reads that he was missing in the past, whether as a result of lack of vision or just a lack of willingness to be a playmaker that he's hitting on this season. I think that's been really important. And Keldon Johnson is the last guy who was kind of like a tough cut for me. But he was a difficult case because he barely played last year. And when he did play, he was really good. (laughs) So, yeah, and I think what he's doing this year is more a case of like opportunity. Um, And and there are some things that he's doing, I feel like, that he maybe didn't show last year. But a lot of it is actually stuff that I expected to see from him. And we talked about don't just expect that to scale up to meaningful minutes. So I do think he deserves a lot of credit for scaling it up. And obviously everybody, like he's a joy to watch. Everybody loves his wrecking ball drives. Like he just goes so hard at the rim. Um, And that Spurs team has been surprisingly fun. I think we've hit on every player deserving of breakout talk. If if you think we missed someone, we didn't talk about him. He didn't deserve it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think, I think that takes us to the end of this week's episode and we should have another fun one next week because as you mentioned we're going to make our all-star picks which seems insane that we're already at that point of the year but here we are the trade deadline and all-star game that i can't even muster the energy to talk about how ridiculous it is that they're having one topic for another day but both those things are like three weeks away which seems crazy but here we are in this godforsaken season one fan shout out I did want to mention, and it's it's an industry shout out, and it's one I've had in our show notes for a month and a half, and I just keep forgetting to shout him out. But our guy, one of our favorites in the industry, Vivek Jacob, if any of our listeners don't know, oh, yeah. does absolute fantastic work for CBC and anywhere else he does work, whether it's talking ball, talking soccer, talking tennis, one of the greats. Um, but I wanted to shout him out because like the last week of December, he tweeted out that in his like holiday catching up of of different pods, he thought that our segment when I told you, I think the, the Wizards were going to finish ahead of the Pacers. And he said it was one of his highlights of 2020. And I forgot to shout him out first show in the new year. And, and his name was still in our notes here. So I did want to give Big V a big shout out. Reminder to all of our listeners, not uh, not just our industry friends, that if you're a fan of the show and a loyal listener, hit us up on social media. Let us know what you think. Let us know how long you've been listening, where you're listening from, and we will get you a shout out no matter where you are in the world, as Nuno in Portugal remembers from last week. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.